Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Welcome, everybody. My name is Margot Landman. I'm Deputy Vice President of, for Programs of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome everybody to today's program, which I think will be extremely interesting. After I introduce our moderator, I will turn the program over to him. He and our guest will have a conversation, and then we will answer as many audience questions as we can get to. To submit a question, please use the Q&A icon at the bottom of your screen and include your name and affiliation as well as your question. Our moderator is Nelson Dong, and as far as the National Committee is concerned, his most important attribute is that he is a director of the National Committee. His law firm would probably beg to differ and say that they are proudest of him for being a senior partner at Dorsey and Whitney in their Seattle office where he heads the firm's National Security Law Group and is responsible for a variety of areas of practice, including export controls, economic sanctions, national security, and international tech law. There's much more on him, but I don't want to spend the whole program on him. Our author today is Mara Vistendahl, who has written a really fantastic book called The Scientist and the Spy about, well, I'll let her say what it's about. So with that, I will turn it over to Nelson, and it's all yours. A singular achievement in what she has done in authoring the book, the Scientist and the Spy, a true story of China, the FBI, and industrial espionage. And I think it's a great public service to help us understand these incredibly complex, uh, both personal and uh, international issues uh, that she describes in her book. So Mara, welcome to our program, and I hope we're gonna have a good conversation over um, the next half hour or so, and then we will open it up for of the staff to read some of the audience questions from around the country and indeed from around the world for people who have registered for this program. As Margot said, we will try to do as many of the questions as we can at the, at the final portion of this program, uh, but we have approximately 250 people who pre-registered for this program, so obviously we won't be able to get to everybody's question if they do all want to ask something. And we had already received questions in advance in writing from some of the people who registered. So Mara, um, obviously authors don't come to us delivered by storks. Um, you've had a long career as a journalist including time spent in China. Before we get into the substance of the book, could you give us a little bit of a personal background, how you came to be a journalist, and in particular, a journalist focusing on the intersection of China and science and technology? Sure. Um, well, thank you to the National Committee for hosting me, and thanks, Nelson, for moderating. I'm, I'm very honored to be here virtually today. Um, I. I started out as a freelance journalist in China uh, in 2004. I had studied Chinese in college at Swarthmore and, um, and then went to journalism school at Columbia. And after I graduated, um, just on the suggestion of some editors, moved to China to start out freelancing. Um, and pretty early on, I ended up writing for science magazines. Um, I did not have a background in that area, but I kind of fell into that coverage. And at, it was a very fascinating time to be, to be covering that area uh, because there was just so much rapid development. And also, um, that was also true of the sciences. 
um, there was also at the same time, um, you know, a corruption and graft and I, I got to see kind of the, the seedier side, um, no pun intended, of, of what was going on. Um, but, you know, it was just a fascinating window into, into that period of development in China. So what years were you in, yeah. in China doing that work? Uh, from 2004 to 2010, and I, then I left for two years. I came back in 2012 um, and stayed till 2015. Um, for those last years, I worked for science. Uh, for the, so I was a news correspondent with the journal. And, you know, it's just, I, I covered a lot of um, projects involving scientific cooperation between people uh, between researchers in the US and China. Um, there are a lot of phenomena that we know about because, because of these cooperative ties, um, you know, things like the degree of inequality in China, um, the widening income gap, um, that's a result of a collaborative project, um, the, the extent to which girls are missing from the population. Um, my first book was about um, demography and about the, the missing girls. And, and these are all things that were the product of, of cooperation during that period. Um, but I did also get to see, you know, during that period, I, I did a, a big investigation for science on um, a paper selling scheme, which was a um, just a massive uh, effort to defraud international scientific journals and sell slots on paper. So I got to see kind of both sides of, of um, that, that period of, of Chinese science. So I recall when I first met you some years ago, you had also begun doing a series of articles about uh, academic misconduct and uh, industrial espionage and some of the criminal cases that were then being brought by the US Justice Department. How did, could you give us a, a nutshell summary of some of that work and how that led into the, your book. Right, so in 2014, um, I started seeing news of uh, trade secrets theft cases involving often um, ethnic Chinese scientists in the United States um, who were being uh, charged criminally in US federal court. So, you know, I got interested in this beat of mine that was suddenly very much in the news back in the United States. Um, one of the initial cases that I looked into involved this man named uh, Mo Hailong or Robert Mo, who had been found in a um, near a cornfield outside Des Moines. Um, that was a Monsanto cornfield, and you know the company protected the the corn that was growing there as a trade secret. And so his appearance in that field set off this massive FBI investigation that spanned several years. Uh, it involved aerial surveillance, flowing planes overhead, um, airport busts, uh, an elaborate scheme to smuggle seeds back to China in microwave popcorn bags. And so just this very colorful case, but that also raised the question of why um, the FBI had devoted such great resources um, to pursuing it. And um, that was something that just stuck with me. And then when I moved back to the United States, I, I uh, decided to go and kind of recreate what had happened in that case. And were there particular difficulties in dealing with the subject matter in that way and through the vehicle of a single investigation and a single prosecution? Um, well, that, I, you know, there were, there were a number of other cases that had come out around the same time. Uh, I remember talking to you about some of them. Uh, you know, this was a period also when Xiaoxing Xi, um, the, who was then the, the interim chair of the physics department at, at Temple University in Philadelphia, was um, accused of, uh, was accused of wire fraud, but of essentially transferring trade secrets back to China. Uh, and then charges in his case were very quickly dropped. And so that raised the question of whether um, there was overreach in, in some cases. So I decided to use this case of Robert Moe to look at some of the, at this broader issue of this trend toward criminalization of trade secrets theft 
and the devotion of, of a large number of resources toward fighting IP theft from China. And so I used the kind of very colorful details and scenes in his case and um, really retraced the, all the steps in the case of him, of the investigators, um, of this American farmer who was kind of caught in the middle as an informant. And it was, um, it turned out to be quite possible to do that because that case had elicited quite a lot of discovery in court. And so I had very, um, you know, I had a kind of step-by-step -step guide of what had happened in the case. Well, since your book reads something like a detective novel or a spy thriller, I'm not going to uh, spoil the ending, so to speak, but I would like you to share with our audience today what you think might have been the lessons learned, what, what came out of your in-depth investigation of this one case and how it was put together in terms of the, the nature and the size of the, the, uh, the threat of industrial espionage from China and the US and the warnings that we've gotten uh, in recent years. In fact, just in the last month, we've had a whole series of major speeches by the Secretary of State, by the Attorney General, by the Director of the FBI, you know, all targeting um, China and its malign uh, efforts in, in their view uh, to uh, take intellectual property and, and other things of the United States uh, for their own uses. Where do you come out on that now? Well, do you think intellectual property theft is certainly happening to a large degree from China? Um, it it has been happening for years. Um, science and technology collection is a major um, part of, of you know, government plans. And you know, for, for some leaders in China, they see this resource of having um, access to the United States as, as, a, as a conduit for, for getting secrets out. You know, that much was there at the time I started reporting that book, there was already quite a lot in the press on the threat of IP theft from China. Um, but I wanted to kind of unpack that and see, you know, what is the best way of addressing it? Is, is um, criminal cases that drag on over years um, that involve fairly low level researchers in, in most cases, are, is that the best way of dealing with the issue? Um, you know, partway through my research, I started to look at um, the issue of, of corporate power and antitrust um, issues, because in this case, um, in the case of the, the corn seed theft that was at the heart of the book, the victim company uh, was Monsanto, which is um, you know, one of the major agricultural companies in the world. It, um, is, it's, a, it's a sector where, where the largest, largest companies have only gotten larger over the past few years, where there are massive antitrust challenges. And, you know, so similar to the way of those of you who watched the, the big tech hearings yesterday, um, Mark Zuckerberg has suddenly become a, a fierce critic of, of China and the, um, uh, you know, of, of IP theft from China. Um, there is this way that US corporations can deflect from their own antitrust problems and consolidation, uh, which, which does have a big impact on innovation in, in America by focusing on the, on the Chinese threat. And so, um, you know, I felt that this case could support an entire book because it had all these elements of really colorful scenes, um, characters or figures who, who, who were fairly complex. You know, Robert Moe was in some ways a very sympathetic um, researcher. He you know, led a suburban existence in Florida with a wife and two kids and had lived in the United States for years. And then you also had at the other end um, a victim company that, you know, in many Americans' minds is not, is not very sympathetic. So the other kind of half of the equation are industrial research labs and academic research centers at our great research universities like the University of Minnesota where you live and, and the University of Washington where I live here in Seattle. Um, as part of your overall sort of contextual research and your, your regular work as a journalist in this field of science and technology, how has this initiative generally been received 
in higher education, in industrial labs, and among the scientists, particularly the immigrant scientists and engineers who work in these facilities. Do you have some impressions at this point about that? Well, so one of the one of one of the things that 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 made this such a compelling topic for the book um, was that you know you have this stated goal of the FBI and now the Justice Department to go after trade secrets theft from China and to really focus um, on scientific research. And in the past few years, that's meant working um, with NIH, with, which administers most grants in the biomedical field in, in the United States to um, root out grant fraud and root out what, what is said to be um, IP, IP theft, but I think is, is often much more complicated. Um, but you have this tension where much of the research force is ethnic Chinese. Um, often, I mean, many researchers are Asian American, or they're working with collaborators from China, or they have PhD students from China. And, and so there has been a lot of pushback um, among scientists uh, who who want more explanation about why the FBI is on campus. Um, you know, in some cases, the FBI has been on campus for you know, over a year without giving much explanation at all about who is being investigated and why. And um, you know, if you think of academic institutions historically have, have, a, have a fairly strong resistance to working with the FBI um, under the current under the current administration, um, that has only heightened because you know of all the messaging that's come out from the Trump administration, um, it, mix, mixing up things that are legitimate threats from China with just blatant racism and xenophobia. So it's definitely there's a lot of fear on campus. And in your, because your book really focuses on a criminal investigation and a criminal prosecution, but you've seen a number of these other cases resolved, you know, through either employee suspensions or terminations or other uh, withdrawal of federal funding and those sorts of things. Do you now have a sense of whether the use of the criminal methodology to treat these problems is a good use of resources or not so good? Where, where do you come out on that part? Well, I'm not so prescriptive on what should be done, but I, it did become clear to me through my reporting that there, is, there are immense resources spent on these criminal cases. Um, and that in many cases, they're not, they don't produce the targeted results that you might want. And they also, fall, they also run the risk of, um, veering into racial profiling or um, you know, an appearance of targeting people uh, unfairly. And um, because they're often focused on individuals. Um, so if you look at the case of, um, the case in my book of Robert Moore, who sees, you know, where the book starts, he's found in this Monsanto cornfield in Iowa. He's clearly um, up to something um, as the as the book goes on, and you know, becomes clear that he's he works for this company back in Beijing that has this plan to take hybrid corn seeds from um, Monsanto and Dupont Pioneer, and um, and theoretically reverse engineer them back in China. So they try to they come up with these different ways to send the seed back to China or smuggle it in um, on the plane and so forth. And you know these immense resources devoted to prosecuting Robert, but he was not working alone. Um, he he. There were at some point um, five or six other employees of DBN, that company, who who were involved in this scheme. Um, the the U.S. government was not able to apprehend those people, so they are right now on the FBI's most wanted list. Um, the meanwhile, DBN, the company at the center of this case, um, suffered very few repercussions. And so, you know, in this whole array of tools that are available to go after IP theft, um, I, I would not suggest that closing a consulate is something that should be done, but um, there are other more targeted tools um, that involve going 
um, you know, dealing, targeting the finances of the company directly um, that, that might be, that might be more effective and would also um, eliminate this perception of, and in some cases, reality of racial profiling. So one of the unique features of your book um, is the intimate portrait that you were able to give us, the sympathetic and, and rather personal portrait of Dr. Mo. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you came to connect with him and what your interactions were like as he realized you were working on a book about his case? So, yeah, at the time I um, started the book, there have been a number of um, longer magazine articles on trade secret theft cases. And, you know, it struck me that in very few of them did the reporters seem to try to reach the defendant or speak with the defendant. Um, that changed a little bit when, when Xiaoxing Xi's case happened and the charges were dropped and he and his lawyer went public with the story. Um, and, you know, he has since been very vocal about what happened to him. But I, at the time, I, you know, I really wanted to tell the story from all sides. And I also just think for a reader, it's not that interesting to read a kind of black and white, like this is the good guy and this is the bad guy. And um, it, it just is uninteresting to me also as a writer to, to tell a story that way. Um, so I reached out to Robert over yeah, the email, you know, at the time, the, the federal president email system, uh, we corresponded that way um, for for months, and uh, you know, he preferred that to phone calls for for various reasons. And he is now he served his um, sentence now, and he's now in an, in an immigration detention facility. Um, so it's become very uh, very difficult to reach him, and and I don't know the also the COVID situation um, in many of those facilities is, is quite bad. Um, so he's been in a kind of limbo for, um, for I think over um, six months. And so to your knowledge, he's in an immigration facility because he's in a deportation uh, yes. uh, proceeding at yeah. this point. Right, so he served a sentence, um, was then put into deportation, but I, I, think that maybe some deportations may be on hold um, because of the pandemic or various other reasons. Um, China will also have to accept him back. Uh, and so that's where, that's where it's at now. Great. So one of the other aspects that is sort of uh, mentioned in your book um, uh, toward the end is you describe sort of the larger context of this kind of case over the last 20, 25 years, we have had an enormous explosion in the number of international students studying in American institutions of higher education. And those foreign students then remain and join, for in many cases, the American workforce, particularly in the STEM fields. And so, um, at least as of last year's data, um, probably China, provided roughly one third of all the foreign students studying in US institutions of higher education and produced about 25% of the STEM PhDs coming out of our uh, universities in, in this country. What do you think is the kind of takeaway lesson from your book uh, about that trend and what the United States has come to sort of rely on both in higher education and in the workforce uh, about these candidates coming out of China? So I didn't look too um, extensively at higher education. I, I did look at um, what happened at MD Anderson Cancer Center uh, in, in Houston um, because um, just by coincidence, uh, Robert um, contracted cancer partway through his um, through his prison sentence, or so, but he it was he was still at the county jail at that point, and so he sought treatment at MD Anderson, um, that later became the site of um, a very extensive FBI investigation 
into um, researchers who had ties to China. And, and, and that was, that's one of them was, was quite controversial with a lot of faculty questioning why um, the Bureau was poking around on campus for so long. Um, it's come up in the context of the, of the Houston consulate. Um, you know, I do think we're in a very, um, in a very, a very complicated place as the US and China move toward a more adversarial um, relationship. To some degree, institutions probably need to be smarter about, about their ties to China and um, about also how, what they communicate to their researchers in terms of their policies. Um, you know, it became clear at MD Anderson that the institution had encouraged many um, ethnic Chinese researchers to go back to China and build ties um, with institutions there. And so then when the FBI came knocking, they, the, the individual scientists were kind of thrown under the bus. And, and I think that's, that's unfortunate. Well, I think the phenomenon you just described at MD Anderson really was the state of much of higher education, at least in the tier of major research universities. I think there was a kind of a golden age of encouraged collaboration and ties. And I, it's hard to think of a major research university in the country that didn't have its share of both immigrant scientists and engineers and physicians on their faculties who were then encouraged to open up relationships with colleagues and classmates and former students in China. And you know, deans uh, or uh, development officials at these universities who didn't you know, go along on trips to China in the hopes of attracting more sponsored research from inside China uh, of one kind or another. So I, I don't think MD Anderson was particularly unique. And I'm sure while you were working at science, you saw this phenomenon across the country. Yeah, and I do think there is a risk in going after addressing this problem of um, IP theft and grant fraud that we shoot ourselves in the foot by driving researchers back to China. I mean, this is precisely what the Chinese government has been trying to do for years is recruit the top, um, the top researchers from the United States. Um, and they really have had varying, you know, varying degrees of success. Um, many, many US-based researchers you know, have been reluctant to go back to China because there's no tenure, there's a cronyism in the, in the academic system. And after the Wen Ho Lee case uh, in 1999, when, you know, the, when this uh, researcher at Los Alamos National Laboratory, um, it was a very high profile case where you know, he was accused of espionage, ultimately cleared of, of 58 of 59 charges. Um, the, in the aftermath, many researchers from Los Alamos actually left the United States, went back to China, and started a kind of Los Alamos club there. So, um, you know, that's that is a loss of the most strategic talent, and and exactly what you would want to prevent. And I think your book mentions uh, the Caltech case from the 1950s as another example of this kind of reverse uh, brain drain. You know, of people coming out of the United States for whatever reason, and then uh, going back to China and making a, a major contribution uh, to their industrial infrastructure and even to their military programs. Right, right. That's another example, the case of Tian uh, Shui-sun in the, in the 50s, who was, was targeted, um, along with many other scholars at the time, for um, being a suspected communist, a member of the Communist Party, uh, and then when he goes back to China, he ends up starting the, or, or at least jump-starting the missile program, um, and you know, setting in motion also some of the the surveillance um, apparatus that's now being expanded today. And in many ways, I think there's a kind of a historical cycle repeating itself there because during World War II, you know, he was a commissioned officer in the US Army, had been sent to Europe to help track down some of Germany's uh, V2 rocket scientists and so forth, and was responsible for helping to bring some of the top talent that ended up in Huntsville, Alabama, as part of uh, Operation Paperclip that really transferred an enormous amount of technology to the United States and kept it out of the hands of the Soviet Union. And so, for him to be 
pursued so vigorously by the FBI in the 1950s really was a, a very ironic and uh, counterproductive effort if you look at it through the lens of history. Yeah, and so I should say that there are really two storylines running through my book. Um, one is the story of Robert Moore and of the FBI agent who pursued him, the American farmer who is caught in the middle. Um, you know, this is the, the kind of thriller-like um, drama that's driving the book. Um, but then woven into that, I also wanted to tell the history of the way um, that Chinese American and Chinese ethnic Chinese scientists have been treated in the United States in some of these cases um, from past decades, because it does seem that they continue to inform uh, the way the way scientists are treated now. And you know, the F the FBI has a lot of well-meaning agents um, and leadership, and but at the same time, they do have a diversity problem. Um, where they have not, you know, the predominantly a white bureau and there, there have been issues in terms of um, ethnic bias creeping into investigations. Well, thank you very much for that kind of overview and introduction to your wonderful book, Mara. Why don't we open it up now to a series of questions from our audience members around the country. And I will let the staff begin feeding those to you and you don't need me at this point, we'll just have you respond directly to these questions. Um, we, have a question. we have a question, uh, not a question, but a request from Bill Kwong at the 1990 Institute um, to please speak more about how the case traces back to the Chinese government instead of a Chinese company. Ah, okay. With all cases of economic espionage, um, when that's the charge, the U.S. government very much wants to prove a connection to the Chinese government. And it's often hard to prove uh, in, because, you know, as most of you would know, the, the Chinese government is sort of everywhere and nowhere tech all at once. And so um, in the case of DBN, they were not able to prove that connection, um, but there were definitely you know, there are definitely ties. Uh, obtaining, one is that obtaining hybrid corn seed uh, is, a, is a major goal and improving agriculture biotechnology is, appears in the five-year plans. Um, it's one of those strategic areas that China is looking to advance in. Um, but in a lot of cases of industrial espionage, it, it's that there are these stated goals and not so much that someone is saying, you know, go forth and steal corn. Um, but that um, companies know that the government's going to look the other way and that there will be probably few repercussions inside China for stealing a technology. So, you know, at least with these, with these technologies like corn seed, uh, building materials, some, some of the less, the less uh, you know, not military or dual use technologies, it's often an indirect relationship. I should add just, I think, one footnote to your comment there, Mara. You know, in fairness to the U.S. government point of view, the warnings coming out of the FBI and the Justice Department and other parts of the U.S. government really speak to the uh, deliberate and intentional use of non-traditional collectors and actors in this drama. And so they are, uh, according to their view of what the problem is, there are uh, business people, uh, there are graduate students, there are undergraduate students, there are trade missions. Um, almost any kind of non-governmental actor can be used as collectors of this kind of industrial information uh, for use in China. And so mm -hmm. that's one of the, the issues that makes it hard to pin on government because generally speaking, the people on the ground here may not have any direct government affiliation at all due to this different way of working. Why don't we go to the next question? Um, we have a question from Tom Grunfeld at SUNY Empire State College. Is Chinese commercial spying different from what other nations have done, such as in the US in the 18th century? And if so, how? Uh, well, well, Chinese leaders have argued that it's not. Uh, Deng Xiaoping used to argue this. Uh, and you know that no one paid 
China for for gunpowder, for example. But um, I, most people say it's happening on a much larger scale. Uh, you know, I think it's also to some degree hard to compare because the nature of technology has changed. Um, the value of that technology has changed. You know, we have the internet now. It's a lot easier to spy. And so perhaps if you'd had this rivalry between the United States and the UK at a moment when you had the internet and, and all of these sophisticated technologies, it would have um, it would be more comparable, but you know, my the the, the case of um, of the U.S. stealing the the plans for the power loom from the U.K. for example, I think they had to actually go and memorize the, those plans and then take a ship, and then two months later arrive in the in the U.S. and uh, and then kind of recreate that machine from from memory, uh, which is a very different. Um, very different situation from today when when technologies are just much more and much easier to access. Next question, please. We have a question from Nick Lardy, who is an MCUSCR director. Um, he's the vice chair in Peterson Institute. Um, is it possible to reverse engineer corn seeds? It is. It's apparently there's an easy way that is that requires a lot of tech, technical knowledge that DBAN did not pursue. Um, and they, so this US farmer I mentioned who is caught in the middle of all of this, uh, his name is Kevin. He, he ended up kind of baffled about why they didn't pursue this much easier route. Um, they instead chose a more difficult and complicated path. You know, it involved getting different parents. There's two parents of each corn seed. Um, so you need to get both of the parents. Um, they wanted to get hundreds of seed lines. So then they had to get, um, you know, double that for the parents. And you can only, you can only get um, each parent at a certain time of year. So that involved then, then, you know, being in the U.S. on multiple occasions. Uh, it was, it was very elaborate. And in the long term, it, it's probably not the best strategy for becoming, um, you know, the dominant the dominant corn seed provider to the world, but it, in the short term, I think that it, it could have yielded some gains. And it's unclear how much IP they actually did get in the end. Um, it, it's likely that they did get some. Next question, Erica. Glenn Loveland, he asks, uh, what's going on with these seeds being mailed from China and arriving <laughs> in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I've heard it from you know every Facebook friend and you know, <laughs> people I people who attended talks that I spoke at months ago, and um, it, it's it's that is a really interesting story. I I think that the most plausible scenario is that it's an Amazon review scheme. Um, there was a great Planet Money episode on how this works. It's called review brushing, and a vendor will send many, many items to addresses in the United States, and they can then write verified reviews about those items. Um, but I do think, you know, if that's true, I find it rather crazy that that we are able to buy seeds from overseas on Amazon. Um, <laughs> that's something I would have wanted to ask Jeff Bezos yesterday. But, you know, I talked to my mother and she's an avid gardener and she said, oh yeah, I bought, bought lots of seeds from overseas in the, in the past few months um, during this kind of pandemic gardening surge. So that may be what's going on. Erica, the next question, please. We have a, two questions from Daniel Ma at Facebook. The first one is, where will this trend go? It seems that China wants to retaliate on any response from the U.S. government. And the second question, which I'm also curious about, is what is your advice to Chinese Americans who are living and working in the United States? Well, the first question, I, I um, am going to make no predictions about the future right now, given the state of the world and um, just, <laughs> just uh, the kind of volatility, especially of the, of the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, it, it is clear, you know, when I started the book, IP was a flashpoint in the relationship between the U.S. and China, and it's only become more so uh, in, in certainly the past few months. And um, you know, it's, it's hard to see relations improving before the election. Um, but I, so I think this is very much going to continue to be an issue. Um, two, what advice to give people? 
I, I believe Nelson and others have given um, seminars for Chinese American scientists with a lot of helpful information on just how to avoid any perception of wrongdoing because people do make um, innocent mistakes. Uh, and so, you know, it's probably best to w go watch one of those if you can find a, a video of it um, or, you know, find slides somewhere and, and just make sure that you don't give any appearance of of you know doing anything wrong and i'm i'm talking about people who who are just completely clean and going about their research lives and have have no untoward ties um that even then um as a case of xiaoxing xi shows their their connections to china can can be perceived in this um nefarious light and and that unfortunately is the the situation that we're in right now. Since Mara uh, made reference to some of the talks I've given in the past, uh, if I can offer just a couple of tips in answer to the part two question, there are many legal obligations of employees, both in private industry and in higher education. And so anybody that's working for a company or for a university needs to understand what their legal duties are to their employer and to the customers of the company or to the sponsors of academic research, whether they're private foundations or federal agencies such as the NIH, NSF, the Department of Defense, US Department of Agriculture, or any other source of federal funding. And there's a vast uh, push on across the US government during this administration and will probably continue into the next administration, whoever is in the White House, that these federal funding agencies are going to be looking vigorously at ensuring that funded investigators make proper disclosures of their ties to foreign funding sources, to foreign universities, that they disclose when they have a joint appointment, when they have a second job, when they have what government investigators call a shadow laboratory that mirrors the laboratory they may have at a U.S. university. All of those things need to be disclosed forthrightly, both to the host institution and to the U.S. government if you're seeking that kind of federal support. And, you know, just imagine how difficult it will be if it turns out that you fail to make those disclosures in a timely and accurate way and then somebody knocks on your door and says, we have some agents who wanna talk with you today. That's not the scenario you wanna set up for yourself. So the first real big tip is understand what your duties are and follow those duties. Erica, next question, please. We have a question from Sam Borgwart at AMC Entertainment. Um, with continued inflammatory relations between China and the US, do you expect any further progress on China-US trade talks on IP theft and enforcement of any agreements? Again, I don't know. I don't want to make future predictions uh, right now. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I, you know, I should say, I should add that there has been a, there has been a fair amount of um, effort to improve the IP regime within China. And, you know, I know that sounds contradictory with all the, the news reports that have come out in the past few years. Um, I've, I have heard from IP lawyers who work there that they do have a little, a bit more success of, of um, bringing cases in, in Chinese court. And um, so, you know, even though this has become a major flashpoint internationally, it is worth it for for companies to pursue their cases in China. Um, that may have changed in the past few months. I mean, this is, this is advice from a year or two ago, so. I will only add as a footnote to Mara's comment that the phase one trade agreement that was reached between uh, China and the United States in January of this year did contain quite a number of provisions regarding IP improvements in China and um, backing off of compelled transfers of technology for joint ventures and other uh, business affairs in China and a host of other uh, technical improvements. I think the business community generally that has been following these issues, and I would refer you in particular to um, the website of the US-China Business Council in Washington, DC, where there's a good deal of information that tracks 
uh, some of those particular clauses in the phase one agreement and how they have been uh, much welcomed by um, many of the larger companies who do business from the United States into China. Erica, next question, please. We received a message without a name. Um, can you address the relationship between the case which you describe and the changes in policy with respect to genetic modification in agriculture that Xi Jinping has favored? Right, so at the time that this case started, the, you know, it was corn, um, GM corn was um, not allowed to be commercialized in China and um, GM being genetically modified. Genetically right? modified corn, yeah. And, but there was this expectation that this would change and um, the corn that is at the heart of the case is all genetically modified. And so you know, it's possible, one theory was that DBN was preparing for the eventual change in policy um, and trying to improve its stock of genetically modified seeds um, before, the, before the policy was changed. Um, but I'm not absolutely certain that that, was, that that was the reason. It's also possible that they sought the seed for other markets um, elsewhere in the world. Erica? We have a question from Kirk Freeman at Georgetown University. Do we need to re redefine national security with a stronger emphasis on industrial espionage and financial corruption? So I would argue that it has already been redefined to include economic security. Um, you know, that, that's a shift that started in the 1990s when the, when the Economic Espionage Act was passed, but that over the, the, the past decade or so, the statements of, of um, national security leaders and people in the intelligence community have really shown that there is this broader definition of national security. Um, you know, at the same time, the FBI, uh, after S September 11th, transitioned from being strictly a law enforcement agency to being more of a counterintelligence um, agency. And so that, that change in definition has also co coincided with this change in focus of the FBI to the point where they would, um, you know, really pursue these complicated counterintelligence investigations that are involving um, foreign countries, um, extremely, um, you know, extremely complex technologies. And, and so I would argue that that already is the definition, at least um, as far as U.S. government officials are concerned. I want to echo what Mara said a moment ago about the change to federal law in the 1990s with the adoption of the Industrial Espionage Statute. In the Title 18 of the United States Code, where these crimes are defined and specified, there are actually two industrial espionage statutes that were put into place at the same time. One is aimed at industrial espionage to benefit private parties, and the other is to benefit a government. And so the notion even in the 1990s was that there could be two flavors of industrial espionage and both of them would be viewed as criminal violations. However, beneath the surface of all these different prosecutions that we read about in the Wall Street Journal and these other newspapers around the country, there really is a vast array of different criminal statutes that the FBI and the Justice Department can enforce from time to time. And so you heard, for instance, um, Mara describe Dr. Xi's case in Philadelphia as involving fraud. There are, there's a wire fraud statute, a mail fraud statute, government fraud statute. And so um, there, there are many different tools, the conspiracy statute, uh, false statement statute, which is kind of the Swiss army knife of federal laws, uh, Title 18, Section 1001, anytime you make a false statement to a federal official or an agent, that's a separate crime. So sometimes they don't have anything else to prosecute someone on. You can always reach for Section 1001 if they have told a falsehood to an agent in the course of an interview while conducting one of these investigations. So it's important to realize that we not overly focus just on the industrial espionage statutes, but there is really quite a, a toolbox available to federal agents and federal investigators. And more and more, we're seeing some of these bleed over into 
even things like visa fraud. And for instance, the, the last few cases in the, in the past month uh, where these different uh, PLA officers are accused of having simply lied on their visa application uh, and said that they were not active duty PLA officers when the US government has evidence to the contrary, that's a crime. And so, uh, but it's subsumed under the category of industrial espionage because it's alleged that they went to work for this or that university or this or that company um, without disclosing really the nature of their uh, day job, so to speak, in the Chinese military. Erica, next question, please. We have a question from Robert Cap at Robert A. Cap and Associates. Can you comment on U.S. efforts to secure Chinese-controlled technologies? He also has a PS. Proud to see a Swarthmorean doing distinguished work. So U.S. efforts to to secure Chinese-controlled sec technologies. Yeah, the flip mean side case. Oh, meaning to to spy on Chinese companies. Um, that's an interesting question. I did not come across any examples of cases like that um, in, my, in my research. So I should say that there is a case of, um, there's a case of a geologist, Shui Feng, who is a, is a US citizen um, working for a Texas company who was imprisoned in China for years for, um, I think, it, I think he, they hit him with, with state secrets. But, you know, it, it, you could look at that as sort of the flip side of, um, you know, China going, oh, look, he, we found this, we found this US researcher who's here poking around and, and um, looking for our technology. This concerned oil databases um, in the Northwest. So there have been cases like that, um, that, you know, people, uh, close to Shreifang feel like those were spurious charges. Erica, next question, please. We have a question from our Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, Jan Barris. Uh, getting away from your book for a moment, you recently wrote an excellent op-ed on the closing of the Houston Consulate. Can you talk about that briefly, focusing on the U.S. government's explanation that espionage was the reason for the closure? It's my understanding that part of the work of diplomatic missions around the world, including U.S. embassies and consulates, is to engage in, quote unquote, information gathering about their host countries. Right. Um, so, the, you, you know, the U.S. government has always distinguished, and I shouldn't say always, but since the 1990s, um, has distinguished between spying for political purposes and industrial espionage. And the claim with the Houston consulate was that this consulate was particularly active in um, economic espionage and SNT collection. Um, I, you know, since I wrote that, I've heard that there are some cases that haven't been made public. And, but I, you know, it came out in the Houston Chronicle yesterday that, that there is concern about, about China targeting vaccine research in the University of Texas system. Um, you know, so that is entirely possible, but I do think that more explanation is required. Um, and there is also the question of, you know, if this consulate really was a hotbed of economic espionage, um, was closing it the best tool, or are there other tools that could have been available to us um, in that situation? And that is also a topic on which there's a lot of debate. I think one of the tools that Mara is referring to is the traditional remedy of declaring individual diplomats who are detected in doing things inconsistent with their diplomatic function, uh, declaring them persona non grata and giving them 72 or 96 hours to uh, get out of the country. And that is used all the time um, in, against diplomats uh, of countries in the, uh, that with embassies and consulates in the United States. And, Every so often it happens to our own diplomats in other countries as well. And that would have been a less intrusive, less disruptive uh, response because it's unlikely that every single employee in that consulate was engaged in this kind of conduct. I think Next. also the skeptic, yeah. oh yeah, sure. I Go think ahead. the skepticism also comes because it's, you know, it's the, the week of uh, Mike Pompeo's 
speech about this shift in in China strategy, you know, comes on the heels of uh, floating the idea of declaring all party members, um, barring all party members from the, and their relatives from the United States. So just you know, the the series of events leading up to it um, are maybe partly what contributed to skepticism. I would love this conversation to continue going, but I think we probably have one one more minute of time. Erica, do you want to give us the last question and then we'll uh, wrap it up with Margot's comments. Um, we have a question from Yu Zhou, a professor at Vassar. Chinese American scientists have made a lot of contributions to the advancement of science in the US. I am troubled by com the complete lack of acknowledgement of that in the media. I am wondering whether focusing on a few criminal cases would set the science back in the United States. Since you have covered the collaboration, do you have any suggestions to highlight Chinese American scientists and their contributions to the science in the US? Well, that, that's a good question, I think, especially in the context of uh, all of the hate crimes that have flared up in the past few months, um, you know, with the president using terms like Chinese virus and, um, and Wuhan flu and so forth. And, um, I, I do think there is a problem with media coverage of some of these cases, um, you know, but also with some of the language that prosecutors use in some cases. Um, I think there's some media coverage that's very measured. There's others, other coverage that, that uses these, you know, in which scientists are compared to animals or um, locusts or in a swarm. I mean, these are some of the, these are some of the passages I, talked about in the book. Um, and I find that very problematic. It's very otherizing. Um, you know, this is not an issue that's unique to coverage of these trade secrets thefts, but you know, the media does have this tendency to, to uh, convict somebody publicly before they have had their time in court. And I think that certainly happens with these cases um, where you, some of the standards that we would normally apply of not naming someone until they're charged um, are sometimes, uh, sometimes thrown out the window. And so I would hope that, that we get, um, that you know, we have a discussion about that kind of coverage going forward. Mara, I got a note by chat from Margot that we can go a little bit longer if you have the time to stay. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to, to continue this dialogue sure. a little bit longer. All I right. have ten minutes. I have ten minutes or so. All right, then let's go go a little bit yeah. further. Erica, why don't you tee up the next one then? We'll just keep going as long as we can. Sounds good. Uh, we have a question from Yue. She recently graduated from SUNY Buffalo, and a. Um, her question is, do you think there will be a decrease in numbers of Chinese international students pursuing in higher education in the U.S., um, in parentheses, engineering or techno tech technology fields, um, after several reveals of similar espionage cases? If so, that would be the, what would be the influence of this? Just curious, have you come across other industrial espionage-related to other ethnical background researchers? So certainly industrial espionage is not limited to China. Um, the bulk of cases that we see come to light do involve China, but you know, when, the, when the Economic Espionage Act was passed in the 1990s, the, the concern at the time was really France and Israel. Uh, and you know, Israel has a very sophisticated intelligence apparatus and I would think is still pretty active um, in, in economic espionage as well. But, um, in, ter in terms of whether we would see a decline in students coming to the United States, um, I have heard, you know, even before, say, the past the past six months, I'd heard from um, principal investigators that they they their potential PhD students are worried about the climate in the United States. I think now there is so much happening with the you know requirement that foreign students be on campus, um, the potential CCP member ban, you know, all of these things I'm sure contribute, but it's really um, at this point, a kind of, it must be a snowball effect. And I think it would be hard to separate out exactly why people are, are making the decisions that they are. Um, but it's certainly an, uh, an interesting question going forward because, you know, historically we do have fewer, um, 
fewer um, American-born kids going into STEM fields. And so that's one of the reasons we've become this center for talented researchers from around the world. All right, I'm a little reluctant to close the program because I think it has been so incredibly fascinating and our audience thinks so too, they've stayed with us. So thank you so much to Nelson and Mara for spending time with us this afternoon and illuminating such interesting, important topics. And before we go, I would like to call our audience's attention to a program that the National Committee is doing on August 6th on science and education in the crossfire. Um, it, sh it should be really fascinating. And if I can get to it fast enough, I'll send the link to the chat so everybody can sign up for it. So again, thank you very much to our speaker and our moderator and a, another plug for the book. It's really terrific. It's a great thank book. You. Take care. Thank, thank you, you Mara. Thank Thanks. you, Margot. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.